0: You are listening to Play on Words on CFUV 101.9 FM, located in beautiful Victoria. Join us, lovely listeners, for the next hour as we hear more poetry made up right on the spot and hear from Bertie Wooster and his valet, Jeeves.
1: We have to sit and listen to this entire introduction again? Hey! Hey! You, person who is talking. You already said all this. Oh, why do you care,
2: Gerald? It's not like we have anywhere to be. If we weren't here, what would we be doing? I'd probably be trying to have a nap while you harass me all day, climbing in and out of the window instead of using the door. Gerald! Why won't you just use my front door?
1: Well, windows are just more fun, aren't they? I love windows.
0: Don't touch that dial. We're just getting started. Gerald! Where did the
1: host go? What did you do now? Nothing, I didn't touch any of the dials. Oh,
2: let me get that radio. How do you work this darn thing? There's so many
1: buttons.
2: That's it. I'm calling radio repair.
1: I thought we were done. Hey, put that address book away, Marjorie. You you wouldn't dare. Marge, come on.
3: Are you feeling down today? Are you looking for something to spice up your style? Well, I'm your new fashion consultant from Fine Footwear to help you out. Just come on down to your local Fine Footwear store to pick from one of 20 styles. That's right, 20 styles. We carry brand new men's, women's, and children's shoes for low, low prices. And right now, we are offering you a special deal. If you buy two pairs of adult shoes, you can get one children's pair for half off. You heard me right, a deal for the entire family. So come on down to find footwear today to turn that frown upside down. To receive the special offer coupon, just write your name and address on a penny postcard and mail it to the station.
0: Follow us once again, darling listeners, to the Downtown Core, where we ask you, busy little bees, to come up with a poem right now.
1: How'd you get the radio working again? I took a look at the manual, Margie. They explained very clearly that if you wire the external audition output to the program line, you can get a clear VU meter reading.
2: I don't believe you managed to do all that wiring and rewiring
1: properly. Uh, Of course not. I just gave it a good kick in the speaker and it started right up again. Oh,
4: Gerald!
5: So here we are in beautiful downtown Victoria. We are uh, talking to... what is your name?
4: Uh, Ted. My name is Ted.
5: Oh, hi, Ted. Perfect. Are you ready on this lovely day to make up a poem right now?
4: Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Yes, I am.
5: Perfect. Great. All right. So whenever you're ready, Ted.
4: Okay. Uh, here goes. Um...
5: Okay, blow us away, Ted. Anytime now, Ted.
4: Uh, Violet, uh, uh, there... I'm starting to believe that Ted is not a poet. And we are out of
5: time. Thank you very much, Ted. That was lovely. That was just so lovely. Have a have a great day,
4: Ted. Uh, thanks.
0: Our marvelous new radio drama, Leave It to Jeeves, is coming up right after these messages.
1: Oh, it's starting. Did you bring the popcorn? I snuck it in my pocket. Do you have the chocolate?
2: I snuck it in inside my umbrella. Did you bring the wine?
1: Yes, I filled a flash and hid it under my shirt.
2: Oh, Oh, no, Gerald. We forgot to bring the antacids.
3: Ah, what a sheer delight that you've tuned in. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Bertie Wooster. And you, well, whoever you may be, You're just in time for a recounting of the fond memories I have of my man, my valiant valet Jeeves. Ah yes, Jeeves and I saw many a misadventure, including the circumstance in which I aimed to aid my good chap Corky with a conundrum he was facing. Now let's see if my memory is correct. Jeeves, my man you know, is really a most extraordinary fellow. So capable. Honestly, I shouldn't know what to do without him. On broader lines, he's like those folks who sit peering sadly over the marble battlements at the Pennsylvania station in the place-marked inquiries. You know the Johnnies, I mean. You go up to them and say, When's the next train for Mellon-Squashville, Tennessee? And they reply, without stopping to think, 2.43, track 10, change at San Francisco. And they're right every time. Well, Jeeves gives you just the same impression of omniscience. As an instance of what I mean, I remember meeting Monty Bing in Bond Street one morning looking the last word in a gray check suit, and I felt I should never be happy till I had one like it. I dug the address of the tailors out of him and had them working on the thing inside the hour. That evening, I explained my plans to my man.
6: Jeeves, I'm getting a check suit like that one of Mr. Bing's.
4: Mm, Injudicious, sir. It will not become of you.
6: But why not? It's the soundest thing I've struck for years.
4: Oh, but it wouldn't suit you one
3: bit.
6: We'll have to wait and see, won't we?
4: Indeed, sir.
3: Well, the long and short of it was that the confounded thing came home, and I put it on, and when I caught sight of myself in the glass, I nearly cried. Jeeves was perfectly right. I looked across between a hall comedian and a cheap bookie. Yet Monty had looked fine in absolutely the same stuff. These things are just life's mysteries, and that's all there is to it. Leave it to Jeeves to know the ins and outs of all inquiries. So, with that, you'll certainly understand how Jeeves sniffed out the right answer to old Corky's woes. Now, how might I explain young Corky's character?
7: Hello. Good morning. Lovely weather we're having, yes?
3: Ah, yes. Corky was one of those artist types. A portrait painter, he called himself, but he hadn't painted any portraits. You could say he was sitting on the sidelines with a blanket over his shoulders, waiting for a chance to get into the game. You see, the catch about portrait painting, I've looked into the thing a bit, is that you can't start painting portraits until people come along and ask you to. And they won't come along and ask you to until you've painted a lot first. This makes it kind of difficult for a beginner. Corky managed to get along by drawing an occasional picture for the comic papers. He had rather a gift for funny stuff when he got a good idea and doing bedsteads and chairs and things for the advertisements. His principal source of income, however, was derived from biting the ear of a rich uncle, one Alexander Warpole, who was in the jute business. I'm a bit foggy as to what jute is, but it's apparently something the populace is pretty keen on, for Mr. Warpole had made quite an indecently large stack out of it. Now a great many fellows think that having a rich uncle is a pretty soft snap, but according to Corky, such is not the case. I distinctly remember Corky speaking of his uncle in a harrowing manner.
7: Why, Uncle Warp is a robust sort of co who seems he'll live forever. He's 51 and rightly it seems as if he might go to par. But to be frank, it's not this that distresses me. What kicks me is the way my uncle continues to harass my creativity. You see, he doesn't want me to be an artist. He always urges me to chuck art go into the jute business, and start at the bottom to work my way up. It's almost as though he doesn't believe I have any talent.
3: For Mr. Warple, jute had apparently become a sort of obsession. He seemed to attach almost a spiritual importance to it.
7: Well, I surely don't know what they do at the bottom of the jute business. But my better instinct tells me that it is something too beastly for words. Why, it's simply trivial to think of myself as anything but a painter. I believe in my future as an artist. Someday, I'm gonna make a hit.
3: Meanwhile, by using the utmost tact and persuasiveness, he was inducing his uncle to cough up, very grudgingly, a small quarterly allowance. He wouldn't have got this if his uncle hadn't had a hobby. Mr. Warple was peculiar in this respect. As a rule, from what I've observed, an American captain of industry such as Mr. Warple doesn't do anything out of business hours when he has put the cat out and locked up the office for the night he just relapses into a state of coma from which he emerges only to start being a captain of industry again but Mr. Warple in his spare time was what is known as an ornithologist a bird watcher fancy that he had written a book called American Birds and was writing another to be called more American Birds when he had finished that the presumption was that he would begin a third and keep on till the supply of American birds gave out.
7: The trick is to go to him about once every three months and let him talk about American birds. You can do what you like with my dear uncle if you give him his head first on his pet subject. These little chats make my allowance all right for the time being. But frankly, it's a bit of a rotten tradition. The topic is dreadfully boring. I find myself dozing off just thinking about the wretched things.
3: To complete the character study of Mr. Warple, he was a man of extremely uncertain temper, and his general tendency was to think that Corky was a poor chump, and that whatever step he took in any direction on his own account was just another proof of his incompetence. I should imagine Jeeves feels very much the same about me. So when Corky trickled into my apartment one afternoon shooing a girl in front of him, the aspect of the matter which hit me first was precisely the one which he had come to consult me about.
7: Buddy, oh, buddy, are you about? I'm in the parlor. Do come in. Buddy, I want you to meet my fiance, Miss Singer. How do you do?
6: Just delightful! Lovely to see you both. Tell me, Corky, how is your dear uncle these
7: days? Have you told him about the good news? Uh, well, that's what I've come to see you about, chap. I'm in need of some guidance.
8: We're so scared, Mr. Wooster. We were hoping that you might suggest a way of breaking it to him.
7: Well,
6: I don't see why your uncle shouldn't be most awfully bucked. He will think Miss Singer the
7: ideal partner for you. Mm, Oh, but you don't know him, buddy. Even if he did like Muriel, he wouldn't admit it. That's the sort of pig-headed guy he is. It would be a matter of principle with him to kick. All he would consider would be that I had gone and taken an important step without asking his advice. And he would raise hell automatically. He's always done it. Well, how about you work
6: it so that he makes Miss Singer's acquaintance without knowing that you know her? Yes, then you come along.
7: But how can I work it that way?
6: Well, in such a crisis as this, there's only one thing to do. What's that? Leave it to Jeeves. Sir? Jeeves, we would like your advice. Very good, sir. Have I introduced you to Corky? This is his fiancée, Miss Muriel Singer.
3: I boiled down Corky's painful case into a few well-chosen words.
6: So you see what it amounts to, Jeeves. We want you to suggest some way by which Mr. Warple can make Miss Singer's acquaintance without getting on to the fact that Mr. Corcoran already knows her. Understand?
4: Perfectly, sir.
6: Well, try to think of something!
4: I've already thought of something, sir.
7: You have? Do elaborate.
4: The scheme I would suggest cannot fail of success, but it has what may seem to you a drawback, sir, in that it requires a certain... Financial outlay.
6: He means that he's got a pippin' of an idea, but it's going to cost a bit.
7: Oh well you see the painting business has been quite tranquil lately.
6: You can count on me for that sort of thing, Quirky.
7: Only too glad to
6: aid you. Carry on, Jeeves.
4: I would suggest, sir, that mister Corcoran take advantage of mister Warpole's attachment to ornithology.
7: How on or earth did you know that he was one of birds? It's
4: the way this apartment's constructed, sir. Quite unlike Mr. Wooster's past houses, the partitions between the rooms are of the flimsiest nature. With no wish to overhear, I've sometimes heard Mr. Corcoran expressing himself with a generous strength on the subject I've mentioned.
7: Oh, well...
4: Why should not the Miss Singer write a small volume to be entitled, let us say, The Children's Book of American Birds and dedicate it to Mr. Warple? A limited edition could be published at your expense, sir, and a great deal of the book would, of course, be given over to eulogistic remarks concerning Mr. Warple's own larger treatise on the same subject. I should recommend the dispatching of a presentation copy to Mr. Warple immediately on publication, accompanied by a letter in which Miss Singer asks to be allowed to make the acquaintance of one to whom she owes so much. This would, I fancy produce the desired result. But as I say, the expense involved would be considerable.
3: As Jeeves explained the plot, I felt like the proprietor of a performing dog on the vaudeville stage when the pup has just pulled off his trick without a hitch. I had betted on Jeeves all along, and I had known that he wouldn't let me down. It beats me sometimes why a man with his genius is satisfied to hang around pressing my clothes and whatnot. If I had half Jeeves's brain, I should have a stab at being prime minister or something.
6: Jeeves, that is absolutely ripping! One of your best efforts!
3: Thank you, sir.
8: But I'm sure I couldn't write a book about anything. I can't even write good letters.
7: Muriel's talents lie more in the direction of the drama birdie. I didn't mention it before, but one of her reasons for being a trifle nervous as to how Uncle Alexander will receive the news is that Muriel is in the chorus of that show. Choose your exit at the Manhattan. It's absurdly unreasonable But we both feel that the fact might increase Uncle Alexander's natural tendency to object to our forthcoming nuptials. Hmm, yes. I guess that should be taken into consideration.
3: I saw what he meant. Goodness knows there was fuss enough in our family when I tried to marry into musical comedy a few years ago. And the recollection of my Aunt Agatha's attitude in the matter of Gussie and the vaudeville girl was still fresh in my mind. I don't know why it is. One of these psychology sharps could explain it, I suppose. But uncles and aunts as a class are always dead against the drama, legitimate or otherwise. They don't seem able to stick it at any price.
4: I fancy it would be a simple matter, sir. To find some little-known author who would be glad to do the actual composition of the volume for a small feat. It is only necessary that the Miss Singer's name should appear on the title page.
7: That's true. Sam Patterson would do it for a hundred dollars. He writes a novelette three short stories and 10,000 words of a serial for one of the all-fiction magazines under different names every month. A little thing like this would be nothing to him. I'll get after him right away. Splendid thinking, Jeeves, you've done it again.
4: Will that be all, sir? Yes. Very good, sir.
3: I always used to think that publishers had to be devilish, intelligent individuals. Loaded down with the grey matter, but I've got their number now. All a publisher has to do is to write checks at intervals, while a lot of deserving and industrious chaps rally round and do the real work. I know, because I've been one myself. I simply sat tight in the old apartment with a fountain pen, and in due season, a topping shiny book came along.
6: My dear, you're I happened to
3: be down at Corky's place when the been? first copies of the children's book of Latter-day. American Birds bobbed up. Muriel Singer and I were talking of things in general as Corky slaved away over Hillary, some painting of his. It was then, insane. when there was a bang at the door and the parcel was delivered.
8: Why, who could that be? Oh, how delightful. The
7: book has arrived. Is that the book at the door? I must see it.
3: It was certainly some book. It had a red cover with a fowl of some species on it, and underneath, written by Muriel Singer in gold letters.
8: Let's have a read, shall we? Often of the spring morning, as you wander through the fields, you will hear the sweet-toned, carelessly flowing warble of the purple finch linnet. When you are older, you must read all about him in Mr. Alexander Warple's wonderful book, American Birds.
3: You see... A boost for the uncle right away. And only a few pages later, there he was, in the limelight again, in connection with the yellow-billed cuckoo. It was great stuff. The more we read, the more I admired the chap who had written it, and Jeeves' genius in putting us on to the wheeze. I didn't see how the uncle could fail to drop. You can't call a chap the world's greatest authority on the yellow-billed cuckoo without rousing a certain disposition towards chumminess in him.
7: It's perfect! An absolute cinch.
3: And with that... Our plan moved along masterfully. A day or two later, my chap Corky meandered up the avenue to my apartment to tell me that all was well. The uncle had written Muriel a letter so dripping with the milk of human kindness that if he hadn't known Mr. Warpole's handwriting, Corky would have refused to believe him the author of it. Any time it suited Miss Singer to call, said the uncle, he would be delighted to make her acquaintance. Shortly after this, I had to go out of town diverse sound sportsmen had invited me to pay visits to their country places, and it wasn't for several months that I settled down in the city again. I had been wondering a lot, of course, about Corky, whether it all turned out right and so forth, and my first evening in New York, happening to pop into a quiet sort of little restaurant, which I go to when I don't feel inclined for the bright lights, I found Muriel Singer there, sitting by herself at a table near the door. My curiosity towards Corky's situation arose again, And I went to Miss Singer to hear of any good news.
6: Well, well, well. Why,
8: Mr. Wooster, how do you do? Splendidly! Corky around? I beg your pardon.
6: Is Corky with you this evening?
8: Oh, I didn't understand. No, I haven't seen Corky in quite some time. I
6: say, you haven't had a row with Corky, have you? A row? A spat, don't you know? A little misunderstanding. Faults on both sides, uh that sort of thing. Why, whatever makes you think that. Oh, well, as it were, yes? What I mean is, I thought you usually dined with him before you went to the theater. I've left the stage now.
3: Suddenly, the whole thing dawned on me. I had forgotten what a long time I had been away.
6: Why, of course I see it now. Why didn't I notice your ring before? You're married, aren't you? Yes. How perfectly topping. I wish you all kinds of happiness.
8: Thank you so much. Oh, Alexander. This is a friend of mine, Mr. Wooster.
3: I spun around. A fellow with a lot of stiff gray hair and a red sort of healthy face was standing there. Rather a formidable Johnny he looked, though quite peaceful at the moment.
8: I want you to meet my husband, Mr. Wooster. Alexander. Mr. Wooster is a friend of Bruce's.
5: Good to meet you, Mr. Wooster. Let me shake your hand. So, you know my nephew?
6: N-nephew? Yes.
5: Yes. Bruce Corcoran.
6: You're Mr. Warple?
5: Why, yes, that is my name. Has Bruce mentioned me?
6: Uh, once or twice, I suppose, only in passing. Very well, Mr. Wooster. Are you an artist as well? No, sir. I do not concern myself with art. (laughs) Ah,
5: and for good reason, young chap. I wish you could try to knock a little sense into him and make him quit this playing at painting. But I have an idea that he is studying down. I noticed at first that night he came to dinner with us, my dear, to be introduced to you. He seemed altogether quieter and more serious. Something seemed to have sobered him. Oh, perhaps you will give us the
6: pleasure of your company at dinner tonight, Mr. Wooster. Or have you dined? Er, yes, I have, come to think of it. I just saw Miss Singer from the window and had an urge to say hello. But I must be off now. Much to do. Lovely to see you, Muriel. Lovely to see you. I wish I could stay. Much to do. Have a lovely meal.
3: I rushed off as quickly as my feet could carry me. What I needed then was air, not dinner. I felt that I wanted to get back to my abode and think this thing out with my man, the wit between the both of us. Jeeves! Sir,
6: Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. A stiff gin and tonic, first of all, and then I've a bit of news for you. Better have one yourself, Jeeves. You'll need it.
4: Later on, perhaps. Thank you, sir.
6: All right, suit yourself. But you're going to get a shock. You remember my friend, Mr. Corcoran?
4: Yes, sir.
6: And the girl who was to slide gracefully into his uncle's esteem by writing the book on birds? Perfectly, sir. Well, she slid. She's married the uncle.
4: That was always a development to be feared, sir. You don't mean to tell me that you were expecting it. It crossed my mind, as a possibility.
6: Did it by Jove? Well, I think you might have warned us.
4: I hardly like to take the liberty, sir. Perhaps a meal is in order. Have you supped? I haven't. How did you know? Simply a presumption, sir.
3: Of course, as I saw after I'd had a bite to eat and was in a calmer frame of mind, what had happened wasn't my fault, if you come down to it. I couldn't be expected to foresee that the scheme, in itself a crackerjack, would skid into the ditch as it had done. But all the same, I'm bound to admit that I didn't relish the idea of meeting Corky again until time the great healer had been able to get in a bit of soothing work. I cut Washington Square out absolutely for the next few months. I gave it the complete miss in bulk. And then, just when I was beginning to think I might safely pop down in that direction and gather up the drop threads, so to speak, time, instead of working the healing wheeze, went and pulled the most awful bone and put the lid on it. Opening the paper one morning, I read that Mrs. Alexander Warple had presented her husband with a son and heir. I was so darn sorry for poor old Corky that I hadn't the heart to touch my breakfast. I told Jeeves to drink it himself. I was bowled over. I hardly knew what to do. I wanted, of course, to rush down to Washington Square and grip the poor blighter silently by the hand. And then, thinking it over, I hadn't the nerve. Absent treatment seemed the touch. I gave it to him in waves. But after a month or so, I began to hesitate again. It struck me that it was playing it a bit low down on the poor chap, avoiding him like this just when he probably wanted his pals to surge round him most. I pictured him sitting in his lonely studio with no company but his bitter thoughts, and the pathos of it got me to such an extent that I bounded straight into a taxi and told the driver to go all out for the studio.
7: Hello, birdie. Coming to the studio. I'm just finishing up a portrait.
6: Righto, it's good to see you, chap. It's been quite
7: some time. Oh, uh, is that Muriel's baby? Yes, we're just finishing for the day. That'll be all this afternoon, Mrs. Ellingsworth. Thank you. At the same time tomorrow, Mr. Corcoran? Yes, please. Good afternoon.
6: Ah, uh, now that we have the room, how have you been keeping? Corky?
3: Corky stood there, looking at the door. And then he turned to me and began to get it off his chest. Fortunately, he seemed to take it for granted that I knew all about what had happened, so it wasn't as awkward as as it might have been.
7: It's my uncle's idea. Muriel doesn't know about it yet. The portrait's to be a surprise for her on her birthday. The nurse takes the kid out ostensibly to get a breather, and she brings it down here. If you want an instance of the irony of fate, birdie, get acquainted with this. Here's the first commission I have ever had to paint a portrait. And the subject is that human poached egg that has butted in and bounced me out of my inheritance. Can you believe it? I call it rubbing salt in the wound to expect me to spend my afternoons gazing into the ugly face of a little brat who to all intents and purposes has hit me behind the ear with a blackjack and swiped all I possess. I can't refuse to paint the portrait, because if I did, my uncle would stop my allowance. Yet every time I look up and catch that kid's vacant eye, I suffer agonies. I tell you, Bertie, sometimes when he gives me a patronizing glance and then turns away and is sick, as if it revolted him to look at me. I come with an ace of occupying the entire front page of the evening papers as the latest murder sensation. There are moments when I can almost see the headlines. Promising young artist, Beans' baby with axe. Oh, there, there, Chappie. My sympathy is too deep for words. It's simply too much to bear. Please let me alone. I must be in solitude with my thoughts. As you wish, Quirky.
3: I kept away from the studio for some time after that, because it didn't seem right for me to intrude on the poor Chappie's sorrow. Besides, I'm bound to say, That baby intimidated me. After a period of silence from my dear friend, the phone rang.
7: Hello? Birdie, it's Corky. Are you doing anything this afternoon?
6: Nothing special.
7: You couldn't come down here, could you?
6: What's the trouble? Anything up? I've finished the portrait.
7: Good boy, stout work! Yes, the fact is, Birdie, it doesn't look quite right to me. There's something about it. My uncle's coming in half an hour to inspect it, and I don't know why it is. But I kind of feel I'd like your moral support.
6: You think him the violent type when he is upset? There is that possibility. Hmm. I'll come. Good. But only if I may bring Jeeves.
7: Why Jeeves? What's Jeeves got to do with it? Who wants Jeeves? Jeeves is the fool who suggested the scheme. Listen,
6: Corky Old Top, if you think I'm going to face that uncle of yours without Jeeves' support, you're mistaken. I'd sooner go into a den of wild beasts and bite a lion on the back of the neck.
7: Oh, all right then. Bring Jeeves if you must, but I request that you be on your way soon. Farewell.
3: I rang for Jeeves and explained the situation. He nodded and turned to get our coats. That's the sort of chap he is. You can't rattle him, shall we, sir? Corky? We found Corky near the door, looking at the picture, with one hand up in a defensive sort of way, as if he thought it might swing on him.
7: Stand right where you are, birdie. Here's the painting. Now tell me honestly, how does it strike you?
4: Uh...
7: Well?
6: Of course, old man. I only saw the kid once, and then only for a moment, but but (laughs) it was an ugly sort of kid, wasn't it, if I remember rightly? As ugly as that? I don't see how it could have been, old chap.
7: Oh, you're quite right, Bertie. Something's gone wrong with the darn thing. My private impression is that, without knowing it, I've worked that stunt that sergeant and those fellows pull painting the soul of the subject. I've got through the mere outward appearance and have put the child's soul on canvas. But
6: could a child of that age have a soul like that? I don't see how he could have managed it in the time. What do you think, Chiefs?
4: I doubt it, sir.
6: It sort of leers at you, doesn't it? You notice that too? I don't see how one could help noticing.
7: All I tried to do was to give the little brute a cheerful expression. But as it worked out, he looks positively dissipated.
6: Just what I was going to suggest, old man. He looks as if he were in the middle of a colossal spree and enjoying every minute of it. Don't you think so, Jeeves?
4: He has a decidedly inebriated air. Sir?
7: I haven't the slightest idea how I'm going to show this to... Bruce, how
5: is my nephew?
3: Before Corky could say another word, the old boy appeared. Ah, For about three seconds, all was joy, jollity and goodwill. The old boy shook hands with me, slapped Corky on the back, said that he didn't think he'd ever seen such a fine day, and whacked his leg with his stick. Jeeves had projected himself into the background, and he didn't notice him.
5: Well, Bruce, my boy, so the portrait is really finished, is it? Really finished? Well, bring it out. Let's have a look at it. This will be a wonderful surprise for your aunt. Where is it? Let's see. <gasps> is, is this a practical joke?
6: You want to stand a bit farther away from it. You're
5: perfectly right. I do. I want to stand so far away from it that I can see the thing with a telescope. And this, this, this is what you've been wasting your time and my money for all these years. A painter. I wouldn't let you paint a house of mine. I gave you this commission thinking that you were a competent worker, and this, this, this extract of a comic-colored supplement is the result. This ends it. If you wish to continue this foolery and pretending to be an artist because you want an excuse for idleness, please yourself. But let me tell you this. Unless you report at my office on Monday morning, prepared to abandon all this idiocy and start in at the bottom of the business to work your way up, as you should have done half a dozen years ago, not another cent, not another cent, not another... Bush.
6: Orky old top.
7: Well, that finishes it.
6: What are you going to do?
7: Do? What can I do? I can't stick on here if he cuts off supplies. You heard what he said. I shall have to go to the office on Monday.
3: I couldn't think of a thing to say. I knew exactly how he felt about the office. I don't know when I've been so infernally uncomfortable. It was like hanging round, trying to make conversation to a pal who's just been sentenced to 20 years in quad. If I might make a
4: suggestion, sir. Jeeves. I wonder, if I have ever happened to mention to you, sir, a Mr. Digby Thistleton, with whom I was once in service? Perhaps you've met him. He was a financier. He is now Lord Bridgenorth. It was a favorite saying of his that there's always a way. The first time I heard him use the expression was after the failure of a patent depilatory, which he promoted.
6: Jeeves, what on earth are you talking about?
4: I mentioned Mr. Thistleton, sir, because his was, in some respects, a parallel case to the present one. His depilatory failed, but he did not despair. He put it on the market again under the name of Harrow, guaranteed to produce a full crop of hair in a few months. It was advertised, if you remember, sir, by a humorous picture of a billiard ball before and after taking, and made such a substantial fortune that Mr. Thistleton was soon afterwards elevated to the peerage for services to his party. It seems to me that if Mr. Corcoran looks into the matter, he will find, like Mr. Thistleton, that there is always a way. Mr. Warple himself suggested the solution of the difficulty. In the heat of the moment, he compared the portrait to an extract from a colored comic supplement. I consider the suggestion a very valuable one, sir. Mr. Corcoran's portrait may not have pleased Mr. Warple as a likeness of his only child, but I have no doubt that the editors would gladly consider it as a foundation for a series of humorous drawings. If Mr. Corcoran will allow me to make the suggestion, his talent has always been for the humorous. There is something about this picture, something bold and vigorous, which arrests the intention. I feel sure it would be highly popular.
6: Well, what do you think, Quirky?
7: <laughs> quirky? Are you all right, Chappie? Quirky? <laughs> quirky, old man! Are you all right? He's right. The man's absolutely right. Jeeves, you're a lifesaver. You've hit on the greatest idea of the age. Report at the office on Monday. Start at the bottom of the business. I'll buy the business if I feel like it. I know the man who runs the comic section of the Sunday Star. He'll eat this thing. He was telling me only the other day how hard it was to get a good new series. He'll give me anything I ask for a real winner like this. I've got a gold mine. Where's my hat? I've got an income for life. Where's the confounded hat? Lend me a fiver, Bertie. I want to take a taxi down to Park Row.
4: If I might make a suggestion, Mr. Corcoran, for a title of the series which you have in mind, The Adventures of Baby
3: Blobs. Corky and I looked at the picture, then at each other in an odd way.
4: (laughs) Jeeves was right.
3: There could be no other title. Weeks later, I came across my chappy's new spot in the comic section of the Sunday Star. My man Jeeves was entirely correct. Baby Blobs became quite the character and turned a profit for old Corky.
6: James, I'm an optimist. I always have been. The older I get, the more I agree with Shakespeare and those poet Johnnies about always being darkest before the dawn and there's a silver lining and what you lose on the swings you make up on the roundabouts. Look at Mr. Corcoran, for instance. There was a fellow one would have said clear up to the eyebrows in the soup. To all appearances, he had got it right in the neck, yet look at him now! Have you seen these pictures?
4: I took the liberty of glancing at them before bringing them to you, sir. Extremely diverting.
6: They have made a big hit, you know.
4: I anticipated it, sir.
6: You know, Jeeves, you're a genius. You ought to be drawing a commission on these things.
4: I have nothing to complain about in that respect, sir. Mr. Corcoran has been most generous. I'm putting out the brown suit, sir.
6: No, I think I'll wear the blue one with the faint red stripes.
4: Not the blue with the faint red stripe, sir.
6: But i rather fancy myself in it.
4: <sighs> Not the blue with the faint red stripe,
6: sir.
4: Oh, all right.
6: Have it your way.
4: Very good, sir. Thank you, sir.
3: Of course, I know it's as bad as being henpecked. But then Jeeves is always right. And you've got to consider that, you know. What? <laughs>
5: Presents *Leave It to Jeeves*, starring Paul Rizelle, Diana Draker, Sam Maroney, Shri Sharma, Michaela, and Max Collins. <music> Produced by Kevin Hammond. Sound by Anchristin Blanken. Directed by Max Collins.
0: you for listening to play on words
1: this whippersnapper loves to hear themselves talk my dentures are coming unglued gerald
2: gerald 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 hey is there any wine left
0: if you like this episode please subscribe to play on words rate us leave us a comment and review the program at triple or wherever you get your podcasts this program was produced by myself Jordan Barron, Anila Page, Tyler Swagar, and Max Collins. Music in this episode is performed by Vic Horvath. This episode was created by CFUV's production team. If you want to be a part of making amazing programs like this one, head to cfuv.ca to learn more. Play On Words is made possible with the generous support of our friends at Legacy Art Gallery and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm your host, Arcade. Until next time...
1: Time to get out the old boot again.
0: Gerald, no!